This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know that you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com to sign up. And the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. I want to take the time to thank everyone who has continued to support California Dreaming on Patreon, and those who have recently joined in supporting. Every little bit helps us to continue to bring you new content each week, including the main episode in your feeds, short mini bonuses, as well as exclusive bonuses for patrons. And because of your support, I was able to bring you two bonuses in January, one for supporters on all levels and an extra one for the $5 and higher tiers. And I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to do that a little extra bonus for you guys. No matter what level you support the show, you will get one bonus guaranteed each month. And I would like to take the time to thank Carrie S., Karen P and Juliet H for bumping up her pledge. And if you would like to make a one-time donation to the show, you can do that as well through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. And if you would like to help out in other ways that are for free, you can do so by going to Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on and leave a review. All of that helps give us a little bit more visibility. All of your help is appreciated. Thank you for your support. Our story today is about neighbors. Some of us are lucky and get along well with our neighbors. I haven't had anything outrageous happen with any of mine, though I do tend to keep to myself. My mother-in-law has the unfortunate upstairs neighbors that constantly sound like a herd of elephants. I went on BoredomTherapy.com to see what kinds of terrible neighbors there are out there. There are neighbors that steal fruits from your trees, or they take your newspaper from your driveway, or your welcome mat from your porch. Neighbors that have loud sex or don't shut their windows or curtains whilst having sex. Stealing Amazon packages, putting their dog's poop in your trash can, or not picking up their dog's poop at all. Or your neighbor who performs loud exorcisms during the work week, apparently. Or the neighbor who plays Christmas music year-round. Which reminds me, I have a neighbor who thinks that they're an opera singer. And another one who thinks he's a rock star. And yet another one who thinks they can play the clarinet. Then there's the neighbors with the wind chimes or the obnoxious sound systems in their car. Or... Here's one I didn't even know was a bad neighbor move. 
taking the parking spot that you spent an hour shoveling snow from? Or how about those that litter all over your cul-de-sac or on your street? I see a lot of littering at my mother-in-law's complex. People who just throw stuff on the ground and don't pick up after themselves because it's not their yard. It's a community courtyard and they just expect the maintenance staff to clean up after them. Yeah, crappy neighbors like that who are just inconsiderate. Yet, some of us are taught a message about these people we have to live in close proximity to. Love them as you would love yourself. Easier said than done. Of course, because people conflict. Ideals clash. Lifestyles differ. What your neighbor deems acceptable may be completely at odds with what you might care to have to look at every day. Like, for example, if you were the lord of an island and erected a wind turbine, the folks on the neighboring island might see that as an eyesore. Loving thy neighbor as you would love thyself. If it were only that simple. We would not have the story to tell you here today if it was. As we are going to visit a set of neighbors whose woes regarding what they disliked about each other boiled over after years of back and forth, petty bickering and feuding, until one day someone brought a gun to a verbal fight. In today's 77th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Broken Fences. There is a small piece of paradise in California along the Pacific Ocean, in the canyons of Carmel, just south of Monterey Bay. It's a place where you have to take long winding roads to get up to your house. A place of tranquility. A place where one might dream of retirement. Surrounded by the most beautiful landscape this state has to offer. Hills and trees, the ocean. Many places around the country and around the world are like a slice of heaven, and this would certainly be one of those places. We are going to talk about three fine individuals. One was an engineer, one was a defense attorney, and one was a nurse and a paralegal. Brilliant people, worldly, idealistic, accomplished, They spent their lives working their way to this place, to their own blissful abodes. The seemingly peaceful serenity of the lovely space these people shared in Carmel Canyon came crashing down when on January 29, 2007, Elizabeth Grimes dialed 911, asking for the sheriff to be sent quickly. Her husband, Mel, was down at the bottom of their private driveway taking a sledgehammer to a giant boulder that was blocking them from making their way into their carport with his yellow VW bus. A boulder that his neighbor, a man named John Kenny, placed there on purpose to do exactly what it was doing, denying Mel access to his home up the hill. Their driveway was like this lovely, leafy pathway that wound its way up to the home of Elizabeth and Mel Grimes. This was a quiet, secluded place. It had a bridge that went over a small creek, 
It meandered around an old oak tree, then passing by an old sycamore, all the way up the side of Carmel Canyon. Once you got almost to the top of the hill, you would find Mel and Elizabeth's place. They were kind of like a couple of hippies. You may have guessed that when I mentioned that Mel drove a VW bus, a bright yellow one. Anyone who knew the couple would describe them as soulmates, kindred spirits. It was fate that brought the two of them together, as they had already started off their lives with other marriages that just didn't work out. Elizabeth was working as a paralegal, right across the way from where Mel's law firm was located. And Mel took a liking to Elizabeth, and it took some time for her to warm up to the idea of going out with Mel. Until one day when he said these seven magical words, I've got tickets to the Santana concert. He asked her if she would like to go with him. And, lucky for Mel, Elizabeth loved Santana, so she couldn't possibly turn down that invitation. So she went. And from that day forward, Mel and Elizabeth were inseparable. And in a year's time, she would become Mrs. Elizabeth Grimes. And she came to live with her new husband in his funky little happy place near the top of that hill in Carmel Canyon, his groovy little haven. Among the wilderness and the hills and the trees, the birds and nature, he made his place uniquely his. And Elizabeth fit right in with her own quirky, whimsical style. Their friends and family would say it's the funkiest house they'd ever seen. Elizabeth's grown son, Tom, he liked Mel the moment that his mom introduced him, stating, quote, He was a really cool, mellow guy. He had a really good head on his shoulders, and they were just really happy. It was crazy seeing them together constantly, always holding hands. They truly lived each day. They were always gone, always on vacation, doing things like that. I was definitely jealous having to go to school, always finding out that they were going someplace like Costa Rica or somewhere in the Caribbean or going to Hawaii. If you happened by Mel's and Elizabeth's place, you would not see your average garden or front yard. They took old surfboards and stuck them upended into the ground, like a graveyard with surfboard headstones. They had bizarre sculptures, vintage signs, birdhouses, wind chimes, even the remnants of an ancient sailboat sitting in the yard. And oftentimes, these things came into Mel's possession when he would have a client who needed his legal services but didn't have the money to afford the legal fees. Mel was that kind of guy who would be willing to barter. If someone could build him a deck or an addition to the house, it would be not a problem with Mel. Mel Grimes was born September 10, 1948, in Kansas City, Missouri, but he lived most of his life in Carmel. He went to Carmel High School and then on to UC Santa Barbara and then Golden Gate Law School. He practiced criminal defense law in Carmel and in the surrounding communities since 1973. And even though he was an attorney, 
straight-laced, orderly, no-nonsense kind of a guy? He was not. I'm pretty sure he didn't do this, but I could totally picture him showing up in court in a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops. That's the kind of man I envision Mel to be. Forever a hippie. He loved surfing, running in marathons. He loved classic rock and blues music. He loved the outdoors. His family described him as a quiet, gentle spirit, a wonderful friend. And when he met and married Elizabeth, he was finally complete. Elizabeth Rosnack was born in El Paso, Texas on October 4, 1951. Her dad was in the United States Army, so they moved and traveled a great deal, but not just in the United States, but Europe as well. She graduated from high school in Coropolis, Pennsylvania, and in 1986, she moved to Pacific Grove, California. She met Mel in 1995, and they got married in 1996. She worked in a number of fields, including being a paralegal, she worked as a nurse, and a care provider for the sick and dying. But the most important thing in the world to her was her family and her soulmate, Mel. She only ever had one son, Tom, who I mentioned earlier, and he got along well with his stepfather. And in 2006, Elizabeth and Mel became first-time grandparents when Tom and his wife, Mimi, gave birth to a daughter they named Loveland. So Mel had settled into his little utopia up on the hill when a new neighbor moved in. He seemed like a nice man. He was a man with quite an impressive resume. He was 65-year-old John Kenny. He was an oil exploration scientist who earned his Ph.D. from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT for short. He was a war veteran, Korea. He had previously been a college professor, a consultant in his field, whose work took him all around the world. As soon as he moved into the neighborhood, he acclimated right away. He got to know the neighbors up and down the hill, He became active in the local church, and he became immersed in the community, getting involved, including the local environmental conservation efforts. Like I said, he was just an impressive man. The events that occurred in John's life, as well as in the lives of Mel and Elizabeth, is nothing less than serendipitous. John, too, by chance, would meet his love, at a conference in New York. She was a doctor, a gynecologist, who was from France, Marie Helen. They would fall in love, marry, and just because John could work from anywhere in the world, he moved with his wife to Nancy, France, an ancient city in northeastern France, with the earliest evidence of human existence dating back to 800 BCE. And it would be there, John and Marie Helen would adopt two girls. And John's girls simply adored him. Of John, one of his daughters, Segaline, would say, quote, He loves Carmel Valley. When you see wild spaces like that, you want to preserve them. 
My father is a wonderful man. He has risen us the best way he could. He's tender. He is calm. He's funny. He is a peaceful man. As the girls reached their teen years, John split his time between his home with his family in France and his own little slice of heaven, his place of serenity and tranquility, that house in Carmel Valley. John was a man who lived his life and kept his home in stringent order. Everything is in its place. Everything organized. Everything planned. Everything systemized. A stark contrast, certainly, when it comes to the whimsy, topsy-turvy ways of Mel and Elizabeth. So when John moved up into his home on the canyon side in 1999, his orderliness would be right next door to the eccentricity of his cluttered, chaotic new neighbors. And eventually, their worlds would collide. For a while, though, the waters would be calm. They would be quiet. Like most of our stories, there would be an occurrence that set in motion a series of events that would culminate in tragedy. The friction between John and the Grimeses would explode in full-blown warfare between neighbors. And the catalyst of it all? It all started with the bridge that I mentioned earlier that was part of the winding road leading up the canyon to their properties. By 2000, this bridge was in a state of severe disrepair. And the neighbors discussed the bridge feeling that if they didn't do something about it in a timely manner, it was quite possible that a car passing over the bridge could potentially fall through the wooden boards and fall into the creek bed below. They discussed what might be the best course of action and what to do about the bridge. And this is where it all started. This bridge. Sigaline said that her dad wanted to hire a professional contractor to complete the repairs on the bridge. But Mel insisted he was able and willing to do the work himself. So John agreed. He would wait. But he did expect the matter to be taken care of in a timely manner. But several weeks would pass and the bridge still had not been worked on. And this was frustrating for John. So he decided this simply couldn't wait any longer. It was a serious hazard that needed to be repaired quickly. He decided to hire a company to make the necessary repairs to the bridge. And John assumed, since this was their common driveway, that they would split the cost of the repairs. But Mel refused. John went and did this without consulting him first. He did not agree to pay for half of the cost, so nope, he was not going to pay. John ended up having to take Mel to small claims court. And he won his case, the judgment compelling Mel to pay John the money owed for half of the bridge repair. And with that, the seeds of animosity were planted. And it would be better. John was described as the type of man who was hypersensitive to his surroundings. Things out of place, things askew, things like the Grimes' front yard, 
which I've described. These things irked him. It began to wear on him to have to come outside and on his way to his car, his senses would be assaulted by the manner in which the Grimeses kept their front yard. It may not have been neat. It may not have been tidy. It may not have been all that aesthetically pleasing, but it was theirs. It was their way. It was what their heaven looked like through their lens. To John, it was an eyesore, and he did not like it one bit. This would be the perfect example of one person's trash being another person's treasure. To Mel and Elizabeth, this was just their thing. It was fun, and it was funky, and they liked it that way. They were way up towards the top of the hill. It was their own place. They were doing their own thing. And they didn't really think it mattered to anyone else. Nobody comes up that way anyway. Except, you know, for John. The one guy in the world who liked things to be neat and regimented. He couldn't stand it. But John's daughter would say it was more than just the random lawn artifacts. She said their quirky neighbors weren't just cluttering their yards with repurposed things. She claimed that Mel would leave trash, yard clippings, branches, an assortment of stuff that needed to be hauled away by waste management. And she claimed it often overflowed across property lines onto other people's yards though she didn't say specifically that the excess garbage crossed over onto John's property, though I imagine if it did, John would quickly make sure to make Mel aware of it. To Segaline, the way in which the Grimeses kept their front yard was not simply a matter of aesthetics, but rather an issue of being a serious fire hazard, and it is potentially dangerous for the terrain in which they lived. Elizabeth complained to her son on occasion about John as well, telling him how this neighbor of theirs was becoming a nightmare. And then in 2003, a new resident moved into the neighborhood a little bit further down the hill, Joyce Scampa. She was a real estate broker, so she had the ability to access property records. And quickly, John was interested in getting Joyce on his side of this growing feud between him and the Grimeses. He would call her, asking her to look up records, run their profiles, and obtain maps in order for him to determine exactly where his property line ended and theirs began. But Joyce considered the Grimeses to be friends, and she didn't really want to get into the middle of this ongoing feud between her neighbors. She just asked John to please not to drag them into the middle of their mess. Both John and the Grimeses would resort to taking their issues with one another to authorities. They began telling on each other and whatever various code and building violations that they could find. They both apparently had additions in the back of their homes that neither one of them could actually see from anywhere on their own properties, but reported those violations to code enforcement. Elizabeth had a detached studio that was tucked in the backyard of their home that she enjoyed retreating to. It was enveloped by trees that were more than a century old. It was her quiet place to meditate or to read or to listen to music, just to have a little bit of solitude. John reported it. 
And for John's part, he added a beautiful sunroom to the back of his home, situated in such a way that gave him a breathtaking view of pristine valley. This was his quiet place. The Grimes reported it. Neither one of them obtained the permits to build these additions onto their homes. So it turned into this back and forth, this tit for tat. As 2004 rolled around and spilling into 2005, this war between neighbors escalated as every new issue that would crop up was a new reason to bicker. They would write letters to one another with each subsequent correspondence growing in hostility. And then one day, the Grimeses received a letter from Don asking them to lock up their dogs, not to let them run loose. The Grimes decided to retain an attorney. And then something dreadful happened to the Grimeses. Their home was apparently burglarized. And what was lost in this burglary? Their three cats vanished. And their dogs were poisoned. There was no way of proving it, but they suspected it was John who vanished their cats and poisoned their dogs. To them, it was no coincidence that this happened after his letter complaining about their dogs had arrived. Elizabeth confided in one of her friends, a woman named Elise Beatty. She complained to Elise about a neighbor who she described as crazy and hostile. And whenever Elise would visit, Elizabeth would always warn her, remind her, to never set foot over onto his property line. To Elise... Her friend was genuinely afraid of John. He would regularly confront her from his driveway, making accusations, making comments as she would come and go. And this caused Elizabeth to be very wary of him. She never knew what would happen, if there'd be more than verbal confrontations, possibly worse. Following the disappearance and poisoning of their animals, the Grimes' attorney told them, that he had dealt with situations like this in the past and the best advice he could give if they were able to was to just get out of there move because you never know how far this is going to go how much this is going to escalate I mean I understand this bit of advice being the simple end all solution if you have the means to move There are plenty other slices of heaven on earth. But I also understand not wanting to give up on this space that you've made all yours, uniquely yours. This was their home and their love nest, the place they loved as much as John loved his. Why should they have to move? If John has a problem, then he should move. Well, As it would turn out, neither one of them were going anywhere. And this grudge would fester. Then they found something they could concentrate their conflict on. The property line. The invisible border that separated John's property from the Grimes's. Portions of the road that was part of the dividing line was designated as an easement which gave one another the right to cross onto each other's property lines in order to access the road and their respective driveways. 
as it was deemed necessary to do so, coming and going from their carports and out of their driveways. They, by law, had to share this easement, like it or not. There would be no get-off-my-land proclamations. But here's the thing, a very small yet contentious thing. There's a tiny bit of land, about 4 feet by 10 feet. According to the land survey, this piece of land is on John's property, but it happened to fall on the Grimes' side of the road. In order to get to their carport, they had to drive over this patch of land, technically belonging to John. And things are about to get petty. In June of 2005, in order to keep the Grimes from setting foot or car, whichever the case, on his land, John planted a garden on this little strip belonging to him. And this would, in essence, block the Grimeses from accessing their carport. According to John, several hours after he planted this garden, he was backing out of his driveway when he saw Mel and Elizabeth in their car driving their vehicle back and forth over his plants, purposely destroying it. Then, according to John, Elizabeth got out of their vehicle and came barreling towards his. She marched up his driveway and stood in his way so he was unable to leave. Having his camera with him, he pulled it out and took a picture of her standing there. Then, according to John, Elizabeth physically assaulted him while he sat in his car that she grabbed hold of the strap of the camera which was around his neck and yanked it so hard that the motion caused his head to slam against the frame of his car door. Their war had just escalated from verbal altercations to strongly worded letters to complaints to authorities to a full-blown physical contact altercation. The anger, the hatred, the bitterness... The heated verbal exchanges became white hot to the point that other neighbors no longer felt as though this was an overly dramatic feud. Their fears as to how far things would go became very real. The animosity between the warring neighbors, once hands were laid upon each other, had reached a boiling point. If they weren't angry with one another before, They were certainly blind with fury now. After this tussle over the camera, John went to the hospital to get his injuries treated. His hospital records indicated that John had a cervical strain, a concussion, and a contusion on his forehead. To help with the discomfort of the neck, John wore a soft cervical collar. When he went to the church the following day, John's demeanor was markedly different. He had on his neck brace and walked slowly with the aid of a cane. He even had a hard time expressing himself verbally. It appeared as though not only was John physically traumatized, but mentally and emotionally as well. His fellow parishioners were naturally concerned, and when they asked him what had happened, he recounted the altercation with Elizabeth, that she had assaulted him in his driveway. He told them she reached into his car and pulled his camera by the strap, and it was around his neck, 
and this pulled his head into the frame of his car door. His friends still thought that he needed to go seek more medical treatment. They were worried about his state emotionally and mentally. In doing so, John's doctors indicated that he was displaying signs of post-traumatic stress disorder from the altercation. But the Grimeses had their own version of what actually took place. Elizabeth said that it was John who sprang out from his car towards her, which caused her to recoil back quickly. She lost her balance, causing her to become entangled in the camera strap, and as she almost fell over, the strap was jerked quickly. Two days following the altercation, Elizabeth showed up at John's weekly men's Bible study. Not to be outdone, having caught wind that John was telling everyone his version of events of what took place in the driveway, she wanted to get her version out there for the record. John sat there, stunned and embarrassed by what Elizabeth was doing. She aired their neighborly dirty laundry, and she requested that his fellow churchgoers pray for him. John was horrified. And much like John's friends had noticed a change in him, Elizabeth's son noticed a change in his mother as well. He recalled how, while he was growing up, his mother always instilled in him the importance of having faith in people, to love people, to trust people. The people are good, and the world is a good place. But her tone changed drastically in the year since this grudge with her neighbor began. She began warning her son to not trust people. The people are mean. That they're out to get you. Her whole outlook on people and the world had shifted for the worse. John's daughters had noticed a change in their father as well. It wasn't long after Elizabeth had made that scene at the church, embarrassing him that they came home from France to California to spend the summer there. He warned his girls to stay away from the Grimeses and to not speak to them, but he refused to explain why. They asked him why he was wearing the cervical collar, and he made up a story about having fallen in the garden. And he simply wasn't the same person that they had known before. He was very quiet, and he didn't talk as much as he used to. His sense of humor evaporated. His happiness was overrun with gloominess. He was lethargic, exhausted. He had anxiety, and he was filled with fear. It seemed as though the stress of this years-long feud with John and Kenny was taking its toll on Mel's physical health as well. The usually healthy and active marathon runner and avid surfer began experiencing heart trouble. Climbing the stairs one day, Mel experienced a sharp pain in his chest. He was required to have a couple of heart-related surgeries. He had some stents implanted. He wasn't running anymore. Avoid stress, his doctors ordered. But this was not going to happen. Not by a long shot. The friction between neighbors escalated even further, if you can believe that. They took their case to a public meeting of the Monterey County Planning Commission. They each took turns to make their statements about the other. Mel stated, The one thing that I do regret more than anything else is the trauma that this has caused my wife over the last two years 
to go through this. She has had periods of time where she simply vomited, cried, and couldn't sleep. John stated, None of us, and none of you either, would tolerate a neighbor building something or trashing something or doing anything which damaged the value of your own property and the enjoyment of your own property. And with every passing issue, things grew worse and worse between John and the Grimeses. When John would glance across the way, he was aghast at what he would see developing in the mishmash of artifacts and what he considered junk in the yard of his neighbor's home. And for the Grimeses, glancing across their way, they saw this fussy old man who was just stubborn and ornery. After all this, the physical altercation, the dueling restraining orders, the county planning meeting. Nothing was going to solve the growing tensions between neighbors. In fact, every interaction only fanned the flames. And the focal point of all this remained that one little piece of property, the piece that belonged to John, but lay in the Grimes's driveway. This tiny section of land And this piece of land would be the spot where this bitter feud would come to a head. John had tried to take this patch of his property and turn it into a garden in order to block the Grimeses from being able to drive over it, which would in turn prevent them from being able to access their carport. But the Grimeses would not be deterred by a few plants and flowers and they plowed right over it multiple times, destroying it. So John consulted an attorney. What could he do to keep these people off his land? It was his, not subject to the easement laws, maybe. The Grimeses may have been under the impression that they had the right of way to access the land, but it's kind of murky. John's attorney advised him the easiest and least expensive option would be to place a rock a large rock, perhaps a boulder, on that little chunk of land. John was game. This sounded exactly what he needed, and he would be perfectly within his rights in placing a decorative boulder on this patch of land. It would effectively keep the Grimeses off his property, and if it blocked access to their carport, well, that's just too bad for them. He loved the idea, so he got ready to bring in this boulder. And to make sure things went smoothly, he hired a security consultant to oversee the placing of this boulder, and he wanted the Monterey County sheriffs to be present when it was put in to just make sure that things would go smoothly and without incident. But John had to put his plans on hold In October of 2006, he had to unexpectedly go back to France to attend to a family emergency. He decided to stay through the remainder of the year to spend the holidays with his wife and daughters. Daughter Segaline described him as being the same subdued, anxious, unhappy person that she had just spent the summer with. She wouldn't even say he was nervous. She would say her dad was fearful. He was hesitant to go back to Carmel. And it just so happened that the Grimeses were out of the state as well for the holidays. They went to Hawaii. So, for a time, 
peace enveloped their troubled hill, but it wouldn't last. In January, John returned from France and the Grimes from Hawaii, and soon they would reach the climax of their story, the culmination of years of bitter fighting. What had been simmering all this time would explode. John was ready to put an end to this war once and for all. On January 24, 2007, John purchased a boulder from a local nursery to be delivered to his home. He told the salesperson that he wanted the boulder to prevent his neighbors from coming onto his property. He originally wanted the boulder to be delivered on the morning of January 29th, but he later called and requested that it be delivered at 3 p.m. instead of the morning because he was going to have the sheriff there at the location for a civil standby. When the boulder was delivered, John, his attorney, and a security consultant were present. The sheriff was running late. The security consultant advised him that the Grimeses were probably going to be really pissed and he should stay inside his home. And if they did get upset when they got home, then he should call him and law enforcement. At 2.40 p.m., Sheriff Deputy Mark Flores responded to a request for a civil standby at John's house. As the deputy was headed there at around 3.05, he had not yet reached the driveway, but he did see the delivery truck driver leaving. He stopped the driver and asked him if anybody had any complaints about the delivery or if there was any kind of disturbance. The driver informed him that there was not. Mel and Elizabeth hadn't come home yet. So the deputy radioed that the delivery was completed without any disturbance, and he left to resume his regular patrol. According to John's family, he was home alone now. He was afraid of what was going to happen next. By this time, John was 72 years old, and his family says that he deeply feared for his safety. He knew the Grimeses would be coming home at any moment to find what he had done. What would their reaction be? Whatever it was, John was ready for it. As I had said, John's security consultant and attorney were on hand when the boulder arrived just in case things became volatile. The promised sheriff's deputy didn't show, but nothing ended up happening. Mel and Elizabeth were not home yet. Mel had been at work at the courthouse in Salinas, and Elizabeth was out and about doing errands. They had met up for dinner, and then they went home in their separate cars. On the drive home, they were sending each other text messages. You know, back then, it was still not illegal to text and drive in California. They were just telling each other that they couldn't wait to get home, to relax, I love you, stuff like that. At 5.30, they arrived at the top of the hill that they lived on. Mel got there first. When he saw the boulder, he got out of his vehicle and made a beeline to his tool shed, retrieving his shovel and his sledgehammer. Then Elizabeth got there and immediately became concerned about Mel's heart troubles. She called 911, and that call is very chaotic. There's lots of screaming and it's kind of horrifying to listen to, so I'm not going to play it for you, but I will read the transcripts for you. 
However, if you want to listen to it, it is on YouTube. Elizabeth called and said, We have an emergency at 82 Hitchcock Canyon Road in Carmel Valley. The dispatcher asked, What's the problem? Elizabeth answered, Our neighbor has blocked our driveway. My husband, who doesn't have a good heart, is out there trying to break it down with a sledgehammer. The dispatcher confirmed the address, and Elizabeth said yes. The dispatcher said, And he's blocked you in? And Elizabeth answered, In Carmel Valley. The dispatcher asked, He has blocked the driveway with what? Elizabeth answered, With a big, huge boulder so we can't get our cars out. We share a mutual driveway. The dispatcher asked, Where is the neighbor at? She answered, He's in his house. Please hurry. The dispatcher asked, How old is your husband? She answered, My husband is 58. He can't do this. He was just at the hospital today. This guy is crazy. I have to hang up to help him. Then on the call, you can hear the sounds of the sledgehammer striking the boulder. Elizabeth begs Mel, Stop, Mel, don't touch it. Let the police come. Don't do that, Mel. Mel tells her to shut up, and she says, Don't, Mel. The dispatcher asks, What is he doing? And Elizabeth, speaking to Mel, says, What is that going to do? Mel answered, Nothing. Then, on the call, Mel and Elizabeth have an exchange about whether or not she should go up to John's house. This is about two minutes into the 911 call. Elizabeth says, All right, Mel, stop or I'll go there. Mel answered, No, you're not. Elizabeth said, I'm going to his house. Mel said, No, you're not. Elizabeth answered, I don't care, Mel. The dispatcher cuts in and says, Hello. Elizabeth yells, Leave it alone. Leave it alone. The dispatcher asked to speak to her husband. And Elizabeth answered, No, my husband is like so pissed off. The dispatcher asked, Where is he at right now? Elizabeth answered, He's got a sledgehammer and he's trying to break this boulder down. The dispatcher confirmed, So he's in the driveway hitting the boulder? Elizabeth answered, Yes. The dispatcher asked, Okay, and the other male is in the... And Elizabeth cuts her off and answered, In the house. Then John emerges from his home. He makes his way down his driveway towards Mel, Elizabeth, and the boulder. And Elizabeth confronts him. She says to the dispatcher, He's here now. Get out of our lives. John is heard for the first time on the 911 call when he says, Get off my property. Elizabeth answered, Don't tell me to get off your property. John said, I will tell you to get off of it. Elizabeth said, You're on my property every time you back up. John repeated, Get off this property. Elizabeth said to the dispatcher, Please send the sheriff, hurry. The dispatcher answered, Okay. Elizabeth said, Thank you. The sheriff is coming. John said, Don't walk over my property. Elizabeth yelled, Oh, shut up, you fat asshole. Mel, a policeman is coming. Mel said, Good. John said, Leave that alone. 
Elizabeth said to the dispatcher again, please send someone. And then this confrontation took a deadly turn. At three minutes and 35 seconds into the call, Elizabeth is heard screaming. She then yells, get off. And then she screamed again. At three minutes and 41 seconds, Elizabeth is heard yelling, he's got a gun. And in the next 20 seconds, five gunshots are heard, along with both Mel and Elizabeth screaming. The screaming subsides, and then you can barely hear Elizabeth say, Mel, I love you. And Mel replied, I love you. And those would be the last words that Mel and Elizabeth Grimes ever spoke to one another. For the next four minutes, the 911 dispatcher repeatedly says hello, but receives no response. At 5.44 p.m., John made his own 911 call. He told the dispatcher that he had been assaulted and battered by his next-door neighbors and that he was injured. When he was asked if he needed an ambulance, he said no. When he was asked about what happened, he said, quote, They rushed at me and tried to assault me. That's all I think I should say right now. And then John hung up the phone just as the dispatcher was about to ask for more information. He did not reveal to the dispatcher that he had shot Mel and Elizabeth, nor did he request medical assistance for them. Paramedics were dispatched to the scene for what was, at that point, some sort of unknown emergency. John's next call was to the security consultant that he had hired, and he left him a voicemail. He next called First Alarm and left another voicemail message. In it, he stated, quote, I have had major trouble out here. I've been injured. I've been assaulted. I defended myself. You need to come out right away. The paramedics and the sheriff arrived at approximately 5.52 p.m., They saw John standing in his driveway. He had his hands behind his back, and he was simply staring blankly ahead. He did not approach the first responders, nor did he say anything. They saw Elizabeth lying on the ground between the road and the boulder. She was on her left side in somewhat of a fetal position. She was lying face to face with Mel. She was bleeding profusely from the chest she was still awake and able to speak to the paramedics. Mel was already dead. He was 58 years old. There was a sledgehammer found nearby and a phone a few feet away from where Elizabeth lay. The paramedic carefully turned her onto her back and asked, What happened? Elizabeth replied, We were shot. He asked her, Who did this? She said, my neighbor. He asked her, is that the man standing at the top of the driveway? She answered yes. The deputy approached John and asked him what happened. He mentioned requesting a deputy being assigned for a civil standby earlier in the day to handle an ongoing problem with his neighbors and that the boulder that was delivered was on his property. The deputy asked him again, what happened? 
but John said that he did not want to say any more until his attorney arrived. The deputy asked him if he had any injuries. John did not say anything, but showed him an injury on his right thumb. Other than that, John had no injuries. The deputy told John that unless he would be willing to tell his side of the story, all he had to go on was what Elizabeth was able to articulate. That there is a woman on the ground who is covered in blood, and he asked John how she got that way. John paused for a moment and calmly said, She did it to herself. At this point, the deputy informed John that he was going to be detained and he would be placed in the patrol car. John insisted that he go up to his house and lock it up, but the deputy physically stood in front of John to prevent him from doing so. John coldly stared at the deputy, at which point he was walked to the patrol car. John refused to get inside, so the deputy resorted to placing John in a controlled hold in order to put the handcuffs on him, and he got him in the backseat of his vehicle. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's clothing was removed and attempts to save her life began. She was shot in the chest and in the back, and she was rapidly deteriorating. She was transported from the scene in an ambulance. She would be airlifted to the hospital from there. In the helicopter, paramedics continued to work to save her. One of them asked, What happened? She answered, My neighbor shot me. He asked her why. Her answer, Because he's an asshole. Elizabeth Grimes died in flight. She was 55 years old. Downhill, when neighbor Kim Williams heard the gunshots, her mind immediately went to the feud that John and the Grimeses had had. She headed up the canyon, thinking to herself along the way, this can't be happening. When she got there, she could see that Mel was dead and Elizabeth was near death. Elizabeth's best friend Elise was on her way home when she heard the sirens and saw the helicopter arrive overhead. She saw someone being airlifted away from the scene, but she had no idea that it was her friend clinging to life. For everyone in Carmel Valley, their tranquil little haven was irreparably shattered. Elizabeth had been shot once in her upper right arm. The bullet went through and through and entered into her body below her armpit and enlarged into her small intestine. She was shot a second time in the center of her mid-back, just right of her spinal column, and this bullet exited her body in her upper abdomen. A criminalist was able to determine that Elizabeth was shot both times from approximately three feet away. Mel had been shot once in the back of the left arm near the shoulder, and this bullet exited his arm and entered his chest through his armpit, and then exited the chest below the right armpit without hitting his arm. He was shot a second time in the right lower chest, and this bullet exited the right side of his back. The criminalist was able to determine that he was shot once from about three feet away and once from a greater distance away.
Mel had also sustained a deep cut on the left side of his face, which was determined to have been caused by being hit in the face with the rear sight of a 45 caliber handgun that was recovered from the scene. Mel's blood and DNA was found on the gun. It was determined that John most likely injured his own thumb while firing his weapon. Elizabeth's son, Tom, got a knock at his door. It was the police there to deliver some devastating news. His parents were gone. His first thought was that they must have been in a car accident. I mean, how could they both be gone, right? They had literally just gotten back from Hawaii. This must be an accident. But when Tom's wife came to talk to the sheriff, when she heard this news, that both of her in-laws were dead, her immediate thoughts went straight to John Kenny, that neighbor. A half a world away over in France, John's wife, the gynecologist, was in the middle of a consultation when she received a phone call. John, involved in a murder? This has to be some outrageous mix-up. They must have the wrong John Kenny. But no, it was true. Marie Helen had to go home and tell her daughters what was going on with their dad. Of course, there was shock and disbelief. His girls believed immediately that their father must have felt his life was in danger. This would be the only circumstance in which he would have had to do something like this. He had to do it. He would not murder unless his life was in imminent danger. Neighbors watched as John Kenny was placed into custody under arrest for murder. Their 72-year-old neighbor, his head hung, his body slumped. This is what his brilliant life and career had culminated in. The petroleum engineer, the war veteran, the college professor, husband, father, Mr. Law and Order, charged with first-degree murder. He would stand trial, and he would stand and speak in his own defense. John Kenny would face trial for the murders of his neighbors in August of 2008. He told the whole story, how their feud unfolded over the years since he purchased that home in Carmel Valley in 1999. He testified about that disputed piece of property, how he planted a garden on it, which the Grimeses destroyed. He talked about the physical altercation that occurred on June 11, 2005 between himself and Elizabeth, about how two days earlier, Mel had poured concrete over the disputed area. He had his attorney write Mel a letter ordering him to remove the concrete and to not drive over his property. Mel broke up the concrete with a sledgehammer. John had gone and purchased some plants and planted them where the concrete had been. And as he was in his car getting ready to head to the nursery again, Elizabeth stood in his way, blocking him from leaving his driveway. Mel went and got his vehicle and began driving back and forth over the plants that he had just put down, so he grabbed his camera so he could take pictures of what Mel was doing. Elizabeth tried to block his view, at which point she ran to his side of the car and grabbed the camera out of his hands. But the camera's nylon cord was around his neck, 
and he jerked forward and slammed his head against the car window. The cord broke and Elizabeth was able to pull the camera away. She said, how do you like that? And John demanded his camera back. Mel approached them and said to the defendant, if you ever attack my wife again, I'm going to finish you. He then told Elizabeth to return the camera to him. So Elizabeth threw the camera into the backseat of the car. He testified that he returned home and called his attorney and 911. After hearing both of their accounts, the responding deputies refused to arrest Elizabeth. John was treated for trauma injuries and a concussion as a result of the incident, and he sued the Grimeses for damages. This lawsuit was still pending at the time he shot and killed them. John testified about requesting a restraining order against the Grimeses, and they requested one against him. Now, they were both required to turn in any firearms that they possessed prior to receiving their restraining orders. And as for John, although the box was checked on his request form indicating that he did not possess any guns, his attorney had filled out the form, and he signed it without reading it. So, this was his attempt in covering his butt for having a weapon when he wasn't supposed to, with a restraining order in place. He testified as to the incident at the church three days after the camera incident. He also said that as early as 2005, his attorneys had advised him that the best thing to do was to erect a barrier to keep the Grimeses from driving over the disputed property, but he needed to give them 24 hours notice. He said that he emailed them, but he was unable to provide a copy of this email. And then he testified about the day that the boulder was delivered. He said he was making dinner when he heard a noise outside. He grabbed his gun from his bedside and stuck it in his belt. He came out his front door and saw Elizabeth near the corner of his house. He said he did not see a phone in her hand, and he said that he did not see Mel either. He said he asked Elizabeth what she wanted. He said that she used some foul language. He approached her, and she backed off the deck onto the driveway. He told her to get off his property. As she continued to back up, he continued to step forward towards her. John then saw Mel with the sledgehammer striking the boulder. He walked past Elizabeth towards Mel and demanded that he get off his property, but Mel kept striking the boulder. He testified that as he continued to repeatedly tell Mel to get off his property, Elizabeth came up behind him and hit him on the back of the head. He said he spun around and shoved Elizabeth. In his peripheral, he saw Mel coming towards him with a sledgehammer. He said that he felt trapped. He drew his weapon and pointed it at the ground, drawing back the receiver to load a round into the chamber. Because the gun was already loaded, it ejected an unused round onto the ground. John said that he could see Mel coming at him, so he tried to dodge out of the way, but Mel slammed into him and the sledgehammer hit him on his left arm. When Mel pulled the sledgehammer back for a second strike, John hit him in the face with the gun. Mel, stunned, dropped the sledgehammer, at which point John fired once at Mel and then once at Elizabeth. He paused for a moment, then shot Mel a second time. After another pause, he shot Elizabeth a second time. 
Mel stood up, stepped across Elizabeth, and then fell onto the ground beside her. John testified that his hands were shaking so badly that his thumb slipped off the hammer and the gun fired again. The bullet went into the ground and the slide caused a gash on his thumb. While returning to his house, he made his 911 call. He looked back and he could see both Mel and Elizabeth were still moving and talking to one another. After he hung up on his 911 call, he went to his bathroom, cleaned his thumb, and went back outside to wait for first responders. The following are John's own words from the witness stand. I said stop that. Get off my property. I think I only got halfway through it when Elizabeth Grimes came up behind me and slammed me in the back of the head. I seem to recall that just after she did it, she started screaming as if she was being attacked. It was at that moment I realized they have entrapped me. I drew my pistol. I did not intend to kill anybody. This was my lifeline to get out of there. He slammed right into me. The sledgehammer hit a grazing blow on my left upper arm. I was grappling with him for a minute. Get away from me. At the same time, when he, at the same moment, he pulled the sledgehammer back for a second strike. I cracked him across the front of the face with the pistol. Well, it knocked him off his pins to my left. I fired at him once, once at her, paused for a moment, and once at him, and then there was a scary situation, and there was this long pause between the third and fourth shot, and it hit her again, apparently. Oh my God, it happened so fast. This was a pandemonium. I was acting half on instinct and self-preservation. I wasn't thinking much of anything. I wasn't thinking of anything except to save my life. On the stand, John Kenny admitted to firing four shots at Mel and Elizabeth. The fifth, he said, was an accident. When asked why he fired the gun, he attributed it to military training, stating, quote, First, I was being attacked by multiple, two, more than one person. My training in the Army had been being attacked by multiple assailants, take them all down. One, two, three, four. And that, to John Kenny, was self-defense. The prosecutor asked him if he felt any remorse. His answer? Since remorse, I hate to sound like a schoolteacher, but as you know, remorse is a sadness attributed to a sense of guilt. I feel terrible about everything that happened, but I do not feel remorse because I do not feel guilt. And the prosecutor could not agree more. He would point to John's 911 call as an example of how remorseless John Kenny actually was. Minutes after shooting Mel and Elizabeth, he made his own 911 call and expressed concern only for himself. 911, what is your emergency? John said, yes, I'm at 80 South Bank Road. I have an emergency. The dispatcher asked, what type of emergency? John answered, I've been assaulted again. 
by two people. The dispatcher asked, you've been assaulted? John answered, yes, I have, and battered. The dispatcher asked, are you injured? John answered, yes. Do you need an ambulance? No. Okay, who assaulted you? Mel Grimes, Jr. And how do you know these people, sir? They are my next-door neighbors. Okay, and what did they do to hurt you? Well, they rushed at me and tried to assault me. For what? What's going on? And then John answered, That's as much as I think I should say right now. The dispatcher said, No, you need to give me as much information as possible so I can let the officers know that are responding, sir. Why did your neighbors do this? John answered, Oh my God, I really can't tell. I hope you'll come out here, please. The dispatcher said, Sir, I need some more information. Hello? John had hung up. The first deputy to arrive at the scene testified that he asked John to tell him what happened, and he said he wanted to wait for his attorney. He testified that he asked John if he was injured, and he was told that he had a cut on his thumb and he lost a lot of blood. He asked John if there was a weapon in the house, and he was told that there was a forty-five handgun. Beyond that, John refused to answer any more questions. At that point, he informed John that he was going to be detained. The deputy took John by the elbow and walked him to the car. When they got to the car, John resisted placing his hands behind his back. So the deputy pushed John up against the car, grabbed him by the wrist, threw it into a hammerlock, pressed him against the car, handcuffed him, and placed him in the vehicle. Of course, Mel and Elizabeth were not there to tell their side of the story. However, the jury would be able to hear Elizabeth and Mel in their final moments in that disturbing 911 call. They are yelling. They're arguing. They're screaming. And then the shooting. And then their final proclamations of love. To the prosecutor, what is heard on the 911 call is proof that this was not self-defense, pointing out that John shot Elizabeth while she was down on the ground. A coup de grace. The stroke of grace. But John's defense attorney would insist the prosecutor is trying to bend and twist this story all around to make the jury think that this is all over a patch of dirt. Not so. This, the defense attorney would say, is a case about a 72-year-old man who was in fear for his life. Now, for their part, the jury didn't like John Kenny. If he were on trial for being a jerk, he'd be found guilty pretty quickly. But this trial was not about his attitude. This was about justice. And there was something about his story that simply did not ring true for them. John's story that Elizabeth attacked him from behind, striking him on the head, they didn't believe that. They listened and re-listened and re-listened again to that 911 call that she had made to gain some clarity. And they attempted to line up John's version of what happened against what they were listening to in the call. 
The jury foreperson pointed out that Elizabeth was on the phone with the phone up to her ear. And she is saying, Mel, the sheriff is coming. And they could hear Mel say back to her, good. In the matter of two or three seconds, Elizabeth is attacked or there is some kind of altercation that begins to take place. They do not believe that she's telling Mel that the sheriff is coming, knowing that she's got 911 on the phone recording all of this. And then all of a sudden, she's going to launch into an attack on John? No. They believe that John attacked her, that he knocked the phone out of her hand, and Mel died trying to come to her defense. In the end, this case came down to two very important factors. The 911 call and this fact, according to the foreperson, quote, He shot a woman in the back. He shot a defenseless woman in the back. He hides his gun under his belt. He goes down there. And he knows the reaction that he's going to get. He's too smart not to know this. And of course, he shoots Mrs. Grimes in the back. That was about as irrefutable as it gets. He did not have to shoot that woman. For the jury, none of this was self-defense. And so they reached their unanimous decision. They found John Kenny guilty of second-degree murder for killing Mel and first-degree murder for killing Elizabeth because the jury decided that he shot her while she was down on the ground. They did not think that that final shot was an accident, that the gun was aimed downward towards her, but injuring his thumb caused him to recoil or flinch and missing his intentional final shot at Elizabeth, hitting the ground instead. The lives of Elizabeth and Mel Grimes tragically came to an end at the bottom of that drive that led them to their happy place. Together there in Mel's final dying moment to comfort one another, making sure that if this were the end, they knew that they were loved and they were not alone. And for John, a tremendously fruitful and brilliant life thrown away. And he had his supporters, though I have a hard time sympathizing with the old man. His not feeling remorse for ending the two lives over something so petty, so trivial, and so inconsequential. This lack of remorse is certainly derived from his certitude that he was justified in his actions, and he simply just doesn't get it. John Kenny was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Today, he is 84 years old and hospitalized at the California Medical Facility. The remaining lone survivor of the pettiest of quarrels. Tom, Elizabeth's son, has a bit of comfort knowing that the man who killed his mother and stepfather in his words, won't be able to experience the beauty of life anymore. That is what his hopes are, that John Kenny regrets the rest of his life. Justice for him 
is John Kenny spending his life in prison. As for John's daughters, they and his wife were in court to hear the verdict. And then they went home to France. To an extent, they understand the pain that the Grimes family has suffered, but they too would say that they have a measure of suffering as well. And as for the neighbors that remain, they would say that they themselves feel the atmosphere is a little bit more friendly along their winding, tree-lined roads all around Carmel Valley. Because in the wake of those three lives destroyed in this neighborly war, all is quiet. And any broken fences of those who remain have slowly mended. And that brings the 77th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I want to thank you for listening. And if you would like to discuss this case or any of the other cases that we have covered on the show, please feel free to join our Facebook discussion page. You can also follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. If you've managed to somehow binge the more than 100 plus episodes and bonus content on our regular feed, for as little as $1, you can gain access to more than a dozen bonus episodes on California Dreaming's Patreon. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently approve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to all people around the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of an eclectic group of shows and hosts. So please come visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams. Everybody has a story, and not all of those stories are clear black and white issues, even when we think they are. We wonder, how did this happen? Or what is that like? Or what happens next? Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss at IWB Podcast. Steele and I host a podcast called Let's Talk About Sex. I look at a different cult each episode, examining the group's leadership, beliefs, recruitment methods, member experiences, and any notable incidents during its existence. It's a monthly podcast with a heavily researched, deep dive storytelling style. That's Let's Talk About Sects, and the website is ltaspod.com for all your podcast provider links. Hope you'll have a listen.